0: Small group tonight, but you know who's with us, right? He's here with us. And that makes all the difference in the world. I often think of Him um, delighting over small groups of believers all over the world on Sunday. Uh, I often see Him sitting on His throne smiling uh, at those who have taken the time to... uh, Honor Him on this day in which He came out of the tomb. So, as you know, those of you who've been around for a while, I don't preach sermonettes. Um, life's too short. Uh, you know what a sermonette is, right? Well, if you've been in the church very long, not this church, but the church at large very long, you probably have sat under a sermonette. I'll give you some, some of the hallmarks of a sermonette. One. One. They only last 20 minutes, which uh, I could never preach 20 minutes. I, my head would explode, and my heart would explode if someone told me I only had 20 minutes. Um, there's always at least one joke, maybe two, if the pastor considers himself a closet comedian. There's probably only one verse of the Bible that's ever read uh, during the sermonette, um, There might be two, but there's absolutely no uh, indication what the context is or what the text actually means. Usually the pastor just wants to tell you what he wants to tell you. So, um, sermonettes too are mostly about you. They're not really very much about God. They're mostly about you and how God can serve you. That's a hallmark of a sermonette, right? Right? Um, this utilitarian view of God. How can I get God working for me? Which sadly is much of what is Christianity has devolved into. You have some pop psychology, you have some life coaching, and you have some cheerleading. This is also big with your average sermonette. You always have one tear-jerking story that usually has a puppy in it. You don't have to have a puppy in it. You could be a kitten, but puppies are better. People like puppies better. Don't you think, Cheney Lo? People like puppies better. How many cat people do we have? No cat people. Okay. Uh, you see what I'm saying? you got to go with the puppy, man. you got to do the puppy thing. Um, and in a sermonette, here's the most important thing. Never any conviction of sin. Never any mystery uh, about God and His ways. Never any uncomfortable moments. We don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable before God. And, you know, there's no sense of the unapproachable greatness of God in the service, in the music, or in the sermon. It's just the same, oh, I've got God in a box and I'll live any way I want to kind of sermon. Right? So we don't do those here. I said all that to say we don't do those here. And if you've been around very long, you know that I don't do those. First and foremost, I don't do those because I fear God. My job is to is to proclaim the Word of God to you whether you like it or not. That's my job. My job is not to make sure you like my sermon. My job is to preach the truth. Whether you like it or not, that's between you and the Lord. Um, my job is to preach the truth, so I fear Him too much to do sermonettes. And as, as I've already said, life is way too short. I'm not going to waste my time up here, and I don't want to waste your time by just doing a... 20 minute song and dance. Lastly, the worst thing about sermonettes, Renee, can you guess what they are? No, you can't. But if you thought about it very long, you could. The worst thing about a sermonette is it creates a Christianette. Now, you know what a Christianette is, right? It's someone who pretends to know Christ but never goes out in the world and lives it. They never do the Word. They're what Jesus is talking about in Revelation chapter 3. They're the lukewarm so-called Christian. Sermonets beget Christianets. And Christianets are really not good for anything except a church attendance. It's about the only thing a Christianet is good for. So tonight, I said all that because we're going into John 17. John 17, and C.S. Lewis might say John 17 uh, you get into John 17, and it really is a sermon for grown ups. In John 17, it's a scriptural Everest. You've already heard me say this, I think. I think I said it in the prayer. It's probably the loftiest chapter in the Bible. Jesus is praying to the Father. This is intra Trinitarian communication. There's nothing else like this in the Bible. Nothing else. We have short prayers of Jesus in other places in the Gospel. This is 26 verses of Jesus speaking to the Father. He's talking to the Father about His glory, about the glory for the disciples, and about your glory in being a true follower of Christ. So yeah, this is big, it's weighty, it's beautiful, it's deep, it's got mystery in it. And it might blow up your denominational worldview regarding God and salvation. So I'm just warning you. If you actually receive the red words from John 17, it might blow up some of your views of, from your denominational history. But we don't do denominationalism here, right? We don't do that here. We don't care about denominations. Some of them are good. Many of them aren't. We don't worry, but we don't do that here. We open the Bible and we preach the next verse. That's what we do. That's what we do. So, with no apologies, um, yeah, I mean, come on. I, John 17, you're going to mess with John 17? What kind of preacher, what kind of self respecting preacher that has any integrity at all would mess with John 17? Um, again, maybe the loftiest ground in the Bible. So we're going to do what we always do. We're just going to let the Word speak. You might not like it. And if you struggle with some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, what I want to say to you is, please feel free to come talk to me. We're going to talk about weighty things tonight. This is not a sermonette. Let me say this before I get into the text. I've already said it, but I'll say it again. Let me just say it. It doesn't matter if you like what God says. And it doesn't matter if I like what God says. The only criteria for any true believer is did God say it? It's the only criteria. Not can the preacher explain it away because he's a great you know, orator or something. Did God say that? You have to, you have to read the Bible. You have to look at the Bible. You have to look at the words of the Bible. The words are important. The words mean what the words mean. There's a reason the Holy Spirit has chosen certain words to use. So God means for His people to receive His Word. And here's my counsel to you. If you struggle with tonight's message and the next three or four messages, because Jesus is just going to keep saying this and saying this and saying this. He wants you to understand this. Here's the the prerequisite for any Christian. Coming to challenging text, you must come with all humility. Let me just give you a couple of verses. Proverbs 11.2 When pride comes, dishonor comes, but with humility comes wisdom. Isaiah six two: I give you this one all the time, but to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at My word. Yes, you always need to be willing to tremble or you're not teachable. You can't come to the Word and not be willing to tremble and acknowledge the mystery and love the mystery. Man, you've got to be ready. God says, I favor that man or woman. The one who will receive My Word in all humility. Psalm 25.9, God teaches the humble His way. God says, I teach the humble. Right? If you're not humble, if you won't receive the Word of God humbly, you're not teachable You're not teachable. And this is not a good thing, a good sign for you. You know James 4.6. God, what does God say about the proud? Anybody remember James 4-6? What does he say about the proud? That's right. I oppose, God says, I oppose the proud. I'm not sure how it could get much worse than that. And many denominations and many people who call themselves Christians. They put themselves as judges over the Word of God and they look down on the Word of God and they judge it and they say, oh, well, I like this part. Oh, this part can't be right. It doesn't really land on me well. So we we edit this part. Yeah, that's the height of arrogance. God says, I am opposed to the proud, but I give grace to the humble. Man can't receive one thing from God without humility before Him. So the humility of the true believer begins. This is where it begins in simply receiving what God says in the Bible. That's where humility begins. Just simply receiving what God clearly says in the Bible. I'm not saying there aren't passages that good men disagree on, but this is not one of them. This is not one of them. It's too clear. It's too pristinely clear. So, sometimes we have to just come in humility and receive by faith. If we're we're immature in the Word, we just have to receive the weighty things of Scripture by faith. That's what we have to do, initially at least, to receive it by faith. So you remember the scene, and then I'll get into the text. You remember the scene back in John 6, you know, Jesus had fed the 15,000 with a couple of loaves and fish, and... and the people liked it, man. They liked that miracle, man. They liked that free bread and that free fish, and they liked that. But then what happened? Does anybody remember Jesus started teaching? And what, how, did they, how did the multitude respond? To, now, they love His miracles. Isn't this just like a perfect picture of the modern church? Oh, we want the miracle. We want the blessing. Then Jesus starts to teach, right? What happens when Jesus starts to teach? Anybody remember? They left Him. This still, this still happens every Sunday all around the world. <laughs> you know, if you have a faithful preacher in the pulpit preaching the truth, there'll be some who just leave. They grumbled, they complained, and they withdrew from God. The best preacher ever! There was nobody left but the disciples. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, you guys want to go too? And Peter said, where will we go? You have the words of life. This has been happening since the day Jesus was walking the planet. And it's still happening today. So John 17, it's lofty ground. It's the holy of holies. We saw last week that Jesus ended His farewell sermon to His 11 men. Without a break, this is John 16.33, without a break, He lifts His eyes to heaven and He begins to pray and He prays audibly. You know why He's praying audibly? Because He means for you to hear this. Yes, He means for His 11 men to hear it. And through them, He means for you to hear it. He's praying audibly for you and for me. So verse 1, John 17. Verse 1, John 17. I hope you have your Bibles open or electronic device so you can follow along. These things Jesus spoke and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. What hour is this? What hour has come? The hour that all other hours point to. The hour that is the apex and the core of all time. Eternity past. Eternity future. This is the hour. It's the hour that informs all other hours. It's the hour that that history pivots on. God is going to be murdered. God is going to allow His puny little creatures to murder Him. That He might save a people for the glory of His name. The hour that the sovereign, omnipotent, eternal Creator God will be crucified. So who knew? Who knew God loved like this? Right? Who knew? (laughs) Who knew that God loved like this? I often say when I start getting into John 17 and beyond, you start getting into the crucifixion. Let the whole created order stand in awe. And if you don't have any awe coming into John 17, 18, 19, 20, you're clueless. Can I say that in love? If, you don't, if there's no awe coming off the page and you're not feeling it. And you're not moved by the fact that, okay, who was that in the manger? I Am is in a manger. Yeah, I Am is being scourged. I Am is on the cross. I Am is in the grave. And in a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate the fact that I Am came out of the grave. Death could not hold Him. Let the whole created order stand in awe. We must. We must. Jesus says, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Now, how could this hour of horror, mutilation, agony, and death glorify God? Well, you guys, if you're um, pretty knowledgeable about the cross, you understand it. It's like a a multifaceted diamond. Every angle you turn it, you see another attribute of God. All of the attributes of God are in the cross. They're all in the cross. His justice, His holiness, His righteousness, His vengeance, His fury, and His wrath. But also, His grace, His mercy, His compassion, His love, and His kindness. And all of the other attributes, they're there. They're in the cross. God will be glorified in the crucifixion. God will be glorified. In the crucifixion, verse 2, Jesus continues to pray, even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. There's two things I want to point out here to you. First, Jesus says he has authority over all mankind. Again, who is it in the manger? Who is it preaching on the mount? Who is it? teaching in the temple. Who is it on the cross? I am. You know, we've been through going through John for some time now. I forget now which chapter it is where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Yeah, people who say Jesus never claimed to be God, they're lying. Or they've never read their Bible. He quite clearly claimed to be God in any number of ways. So, yeah, it's... Um, He's the God who spoke through Isaiah and He said, I am God and there is no other. I am the first and the last. I am the Lord. There is no one besides Me. I am God, even from eternity. I am the Lord. Listen, as we get ready for for Resurrection Sunday. I want you to start thinking deeply. I hope, I hope you'll be reading through the Bible with me here. You know John 17, 18, and 19, and 20. Preparing yourself for the fact that God has come and God has saved His people. You guys know how John writes about it in Revelation 5.13. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth, under the earth, on the sea and all things in them will bow their knee before Him. He has all authority. He has all authority. Yes, you must bow your knee to Jesus Christ. You either do it willingly and lovingly or you will do it by compulsion. Even those in hell will bow their knee to Jesus Christ. He has All authority. Secondly, what I want to point out to you here in verse 2, there at the second half there of the verse, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. Now, Jesus is just reiterating what He's already said to us in the Gospel of John. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me shall come to me and I will not cast them out. John 6.39 And this is the will of the Father that all He has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. John 10.29 My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. There are two... uh, Amazing truths here that I want us to be aware of. One, all who are in Christ are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Some of you have never heard that before. Every true Christian is a gift from the Father to the Son. This is said, I think, yes, five times in this chapter. We have to deal with this. We have to understand this. Or we don't understand John 17. Jesus will say it five times in this chapter. God will say it nine times in the Gospel of John. Those who are Christians are a gift from the Father to the Son. It's just the truth, beloved. It's the truth of the Word of God. And I want to say this, herein lies your eternal security. This is your eternal security. What has happened between the Father and the Son? The fact that the Father gave you to the Son. That's your eternal security. It's not the prayer you prayed. It's not the ordinance you did. Those are good things. Of course you should pray. Of course you should do the ordinance. Of course you should make a confession. That's not your eternal security. Your eternal security is what's happened between the Father and the Son. That is your eternal security. Jesus says, I will not lose one of them. He's talking about the leaven. He's talking about every true believer that comes after. He's also talking about every true believer before. I'll not lose any of them. Not one of them. Jesus clearly says, Let me just point it out to you in John 17, five times John 17, verse 2, twice in verse 6, verse 9, and verse 24. This is a big deal with Jesus Christ. It's a big deal. And so you you and I need to understand it as best we can. As best we can. This is a big deal between the Father and the Son. This is something the Godhead wants us to understand. So the genuine believer, the true believer, the born-again believer is a love gift within the Godhead. I want you to understand that. Your eternal security <laughs> its what happened between God the Father and God the Son. It's It's... This is a rock to stand on, man. It's a rock to stand on. It really is. So, you know, if you've been around very long, and some of you may have been exposed to it, some people teach that you can lose your salvation. Okay, I'll say it, I'll try to be as nice as possible. These guys are clueless, these guys are denominational, these guys are false teachers. You cannot lose it. The question is, do you have it? Because you, you and I both know there are people who walk away. Well, it's not that they lost it. It's that they never had it. They went out from us because they were not of us. So, yeah, this is an important, a very, very important distinction. To say that a man could lose their salvation, a teacher would have to have never read John 17 or or the Gospel of John at all. Right? What they're saying, actually what what they're saying, a man who says you can lose your salvation, actually what's being said here, either Jesus is ignorant or he is a liar. Because Jesus says, I won't lose one of them. He says it nine times (laughs) in the Gospel of John. So what we're dealing with here, obviously, are false teachers, and you're talking. You got teachers who are teaching performance-based salvation. Do these couple of things, and you're in, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. But the Bible is clear. The New Testament is clear. Repentance is a gift. Faith is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. I'll give you the text: 2 Timothy 2:25, 2. Ephesians 2:8, John 17:2. It's right here. Jesus says, "I give them." eternal life. Our salvation is secure because what has happened between the Father and the Son. Now, I'll talk more about this as we go through John 17. I have to because He keeps saying it. You know, one form of emphasis in the Bible is repetition. He just keeps saying it. The men you gave to me. The men you gave to me. The ones you gave to me. It's imperative, beloved, that we have a category for understanding this and not seek to explain it away. Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you. How many times have you heard me say that? If you've been around here, it's probably one of the most oft-repeated verses in this pulpit. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I always tell you, what's the... Litmus test of true born again Christianity. It's knowing God. It's not I prayed the prayer or I got baptized, I'm a member of the church and I attend if it's not too inconvenient. That's nowhere in the Bible. But what you see here in the highest chapter in the book, Jesus says this is his definition this is eternal life, knowing God. Not knowing about God, Satan knows about God, knowing God. That's the point. That's the point that Jesus is making here. Yeah, you you know what it is, pseudo-Christianity. Here's what you hear in, in a lot of false denominations. What's eternal life? How do you get it? Pray the prayer. Believe this doctrine. Do this ordinance. Keep this rule. Partake of this sacrament. Give this much. Confess these things. Go on a pilgrimage. Perform this rite. Join this church. Jesus says, you must know God. Not just I'm cognitively aware that there is a God. You know, I'm always amused. People say, oh, I believe in God. So what? Everybody believes in God down here Romans chapter 1 makes it clear. Everybody believes there's one. Even the atheist knows there's one. You know, he just wants to deceive himself. Everybody believes there's a God because he wrote God on our hearts and our conscience. It's not a big deal to believe in God. You need to know God. That's what's being said here. That's what is being said here. And what's the connotation? It's to be acquainted with with. It's to have personal experience with. It's to have personal knowledge with. The 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 Hebrew here, you know, what was what was the connotation in the Jewish ear? It was an idiom for physical intimacy. (laughs) We're talking about spiritual intimacy here, beloved. That's what we're talking about. That's what God has with his people. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is not just knowing about God. That's not even in the same universe as knowing God. And this is what this is Jesus' definition of eternal life. When people press me and they want me to, you know, they press me and they say, Well, Jim, what's your most concise answer regarding the assurance of salvation? I always say the same thing. It'll be in your affections. You will know Christ, and consequently, you will love Christ. I, I, I'm not going to say, did you pray the prayer? Did you do the ordinance? It's not that that is unimportant, but that's not paramount. Paramount is, do you know God? Do you love God? Is there something real happening? You know, I say this a lot to you. It's personal with God. You can't read the Bible and not realize that it is personal. And if you reject him, it's personal. This is not some abstract religious, you know, thing you've forgotten to do. No, it's personal between you and your creator. You've rejected him. You've refused to know him. You've refused to love and obey him. It's personal. You guys remember Matthew 7. You remember all the religious people that came before Jesus and said, Hey man, we did all this stuff. We did, we did miracles and we did demons. We cast out demons. We did all kinds of stuff. Remember what Jesus said? I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's always about the knowing. It's never not about the knowing. John 10, Jesus said about his sheep, I know them, they know me. Bam! Okay? So the question for anyone, this is I, this is where I end up with anyone who's struggling with their assurance. I, I say, is it is it real? Is it going on? Is, is it happening? Or is this just some religious thing, this religious dogma that you've acquiesced to? And we know that that the authentication of knowing and loving Jesus is what? What does Jesus say in John fourteen, fifteen? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. If you love me, what? You'll just do what I say. This is what people who love me, they do what I say. We're not talking about sinless perfection here, but that is the drive and motivation of your life. You know your life is a gift, beloved. And it's here's the thing. I'm an old man. I'm not gonna tell you how old I am. I'm an old guy, but let me tell you, your life's going to go, bam. Hey, I'm, lo- I'm looking at this. My, both my, my grandfather and my father both died at 81. I'll be 64 soon. I don't have very long. Actually, 81 sounds just about right. Don't think I want to live much longer than that. Man, I, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Okay, I'm weird, I know. Um, but to live as Christ to die is gain. Verse four, Jesus says, "I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do." Um, this is another major theme of John 17, and how could it not be? You have the Father praying to the Son, uh, the Son praying to the Father. This major theme is glory. Jesus will use this word eight times in the prayer, five times. In the first five verses. Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth. What's He talking about? Well, what's he, what's it, what does it mean for you to glorify God on the earth? You already know. What does it mean for you to glorify God on the earth? Come to church on Sunday? Well, that's a good thing. But that better not be the sum and substance of how you glorify God on the earth. God means for you to glorify Him out there in the world. So what is Jesus saying? He says, by my life, I I extol you, I magnify you, I celebrate you, I honor you, I adorn you with luster, I clothe you with splendor, I render you excellent, I make your name renowned, and I am revealing that your dignity and worth and beauty is superior to everything else on the planet. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is what your life should be saying. Your spouse should... Hear this in your life. See this in your life. Your kids should see it. Your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, your students, your fellow students. My shorthand has always been to make Jesus famous. You remember in John four, Jesus and uh, the, the disciples inquired as to what Jesus had eaten. You remember what he said? Because they, they didn't know he. They said, "Well, this, he hasn't eaten. What is, has he eaten? You remember?" Remember what he said? I have food that you don't know about. What was what was his food? To do the will of his father. I'm going to ask you: Is that your food? I mean, really? Ken and I were talking about it t- uh, yesterday. We were taking a walk, and I love the Word of God because it continually rejuvenates me. You know, we're all living in this fallen flesh, and we're all subject to. Uh, Th- hard things and things that depress us and things that cause anxiety. But I, when I'm in the Word of God and I see how big and beautiful my, 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 my Creator and Redeemer is, man, I, I just, I'm constantly renewed every day. So, you can be too. Hopefully, most if not all of you already know that you need to be in the Word every day. And now, Verse 5, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. So Jesus is returning to the Father. He will soon be crucified. He will soon be in the grave. You remember how it's talked about in Philippians 2, 6-7. Although He existed in the form of God, Jesus did not... Re- Regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God has infinite condescension, but now he's going back. You know, we see it in the stoning of Stephen, right? He's standing at the right hand of God. He's going back to the glory He had before He came. The glory He laid aside to come and redeem you and me. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. Verse 6, I manifested Your name to the men whom You gave Me. Here it is again. You gave Me out of the world. They were Yours and You gave them to Me and they have kept Your Word. Okay, I think that's the third time in six verses where Jesus wants you to hear that you have been given from the Father to the Son. That's what he wants you to hear. That's what he wants his people to hear. Some want to say, well, this is what we're talking about here is they're gods in a proprietary sense. Because God made them, He owns them in a you know, kind of copyright way. Well, obviously this is not what He's talking about because down in verse 9, if you want to drop your eyes, He'll say, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for these guys. And then I just want to make sure you're aware of this. If you're not familiar with John 17, look over at verse 20 real quick. Look what He says, I don't ask in behalf of these guys alone, my paraphrase, but for those also who believe in me through them. He ultimately is praying for us here. Everything he prays for the eleven, he's praying for us. Okay? If you have any confusion about that, you need to get unconfused. This is what is being said. Some will say, well, you know, this reference to the men that He gave because they were His and He gave them, they're talking about the the fact that they were the fathers through the Abrahamic covenant. Yes, they were Jewish. These 11 guys are Jewish. That's not the context. The context is not whether they're Jewish or not. That's not what's being said. Jesus Christ is clearly specifically praying for these men. Not all of the Jewish nation. Now let me say this. If we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, which we always must if we're going to have integrity with the Bible. If we understand the particulars of Scripture from the balance of Scripture, and if we seek to make sense of Scripture as a whole from the particulars, if we study the Bible in such a way as to say yes to every passage and find God's clear meaning in every text, what is Jesus saying? If we import all that we know, biblically accurately know, from the rest of the Bible into John 17, what do we know? What is Jesus saying? He's not talking about that uh, God owns them from a proprietary sense because He created them. He's not talking about their Jewishness. What's He talking about? Beloved, here's the strong teaching if you've never heard it. He's talking about the elect. Now you know that the Bible uses the term elect. The Bible uses the term predestination. The Bible uses the term called. The Bible uses the term chosen. Now you have to be adept, an adept uh, editor to edit all of that out of the Bible. But many denominations have. They don't like it. It insults their pride. Hey, I want to come to God on my own. You know? It insults me. It insults me. We're back to humility, beloved. Listen, you want to fight with God's Word? That's between you and Him. But I lovingly counsel you not to do it. I lovingly counsel for you, I lovingly counsel you to humble yourself before the word of God. So what is being said here? I'll read it to you. I'll read it to you if I can find it. I bet it's right here. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 6. Let me just read it to you. Just listen. <coughs> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's what's being said in John 17. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. That's what's being said in John 17. Through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. This is the clear meaning of the text. And if anyone tells you anything any differently, they are lying to you or they are wholly ignorant of what the Bible is teaching. You say, Jim, you sound pretty dogmatic. Well, I am dogmatic when the Bible's dogmatic. I'm dogmatic. If there was room for interpretation here, I'm I'm humble, man. I'm teachable. There is no room for interpretation here. That's what God is saying. And again, I, I want to say it doesn't matter if you like it. It doesn't matter how it lands on you. I know that these words land, they don't land easy on human beings. I get it. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. You guys remember, right? Rev, uh, Revelation thirteen eight: The names that were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That's what Jesus is talking about here in John 17. You remember Romans 8, 29 and 30. That those He foreknew, He predestined. And those He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And those He uh, justified, He glorified. It's all done. It's done. God means for you to know it. God means for you to love it. God doesn't mean for it to split the body of Christ. The only reason this, this truth splits the body of Christ is because some are not teachable. Some will not bow to the explicit meaning of the Bible. That's why some churches split. So God is unapologetic. He is just unapologetic. This is the divine side of human salvation. Is there a human side? Yeah. and We'll touch on it in a minute but this is the divine side of human salvation i get it it doesn't land easy on your ears if it's the first time you've ever been exposed to it you some of you may think i'm a heretic but all i can appeal to is the word of god you go read it for yourself i've just read it to you you go read it for yourself you go study the bible be a berean right what is a berean supposed to do Study the Scriptures eagerly to find out if these things are true. You go find out. Listen, it's between you and God. You're supposed to go find out. Don't you rely on the guy on the Internet. When you stand before God, He's not going to say, oh, you're not going to be able to say, oh, well, the guy on the Internet said, well, God said, did you not have a Bible? Did I not give you a good mind? Could you not read the words and understand what I was clearly saying? Beloved, this is, listen, don't touch the glory of God in the salvation of His people. This this is one of the worst things that happens in the modern church. The people want to explain this away. I lovingly say to you, don't touch the glory of God in the salvation of His people. So, we have cognitive troubles, troubles with some of God's truth for at least three reasons. I bet you could guess guess them if I gave you time. Our minds are temporal, they are finite, and they are fallen. We don't think like God. Uh, We only have two and a half pounds of gray matter juxtaposed to infinite mind. We're constrained by time. Truth transcends time. So, God says two things here are absolutely true. God has predestined his people to salvation, and men are responsible to repent and believe and obey. Both of these things are true. Both of these things are true. God uses words like chosen, called, elect, and predestined. But he also uses words like whoever believes in him shall not perish, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And look, it's in verse 6. Let's look at verse 6 real quick. You'll see, you'll see both aspects. you see see the divine side of salvation and the human side. God, uh, The Father gave them to Christ. They were His, and He gave them to Jesus. And what does that last sentence say? What does the last sentence say? Somebody tell me. That they may keep Your Word. This is the human side. This is the human side. Yes, you must repent. Yes, you must believe. Yes, you must walk with Christ. Of course you must. But what I'm saying to you and what I hope you'll humbly receive is that your salvation is way bigger than you ever thought. If this is new to you, it's way bigger than you ever thought. Your salvation rests in the divine counsels of eternity past. This is supposed to make God's people humble and full of joy. Instead, I don't know. People get red-faced and they walk out. I've never understood this. I don't understand how you can get mad at what God says. I've never understood it. The only thing I can chalk it up to is pride. So are these contradictory propositions? Election and, and whoever would call upon the name of the Lord be saved? Are these, are these contradictory propositions? No, these are parallel truths that run throughout the whole Bible. You say, well, Jim, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? I do what the Apostle Paul says. I don't. (laughs) I don't. Um, You guys remember Romans 9.20. Paul says, oh, you want to question God about this? You want to dispute with God about this? He says, He says, says, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me this way, will it? Let me just give you the message paraphrased real quick. Who in the world do you think you are to second-guess God? Do you for one moment suppose any of us knows enough to call God into question? Clay doesn't talk back to the fingers that mold it, saying, Why did you shape me like this? Paul doesn't attempt to reconcile God's sovereignty and responsibility. But what he says is, you know, it's bad for you two. Don't second guess God. You're clay. He's the potter. Who do you think you are? Back to Isaiah 66, 2, the message paraphrase. God says, I'm looking for a person who reverently responds to what I say. And I'm challenging you to reverently respond. If this is brand new for you, to reverently respond to what is clearly in the text. If you need help, I'm happy to sit and be a Berean with you and we can work through the Scriptures and study the Scriptures together. I'm very happy to do that. All I can do is whet your appetite. I can't unpack. You know, there's an ocean of theology here. I can't unpack all of it tonight or even in the next couple of uh, sermons. But I do want you to know if you struggle with it, because I know most people do struggle with it if they've never been exposed to it. I want you to know that that's kind of normal, but I want you to go read Romans 9. Paul knows you're going to hate it. (laughs) The Holy Spirit knows you're going to hate it. There are two rhetorical questions in there, in in the chapter. Is God unjust? then who can resist His will? Well, is God unjust? What does the Bible say? Is God unjust? No! May it never be, Paul says. Listen, sometimes people can get blasphemous ideas. Listen, receive the Word by faith. Humbly receive the Word by faith. So at ICM, this is what we do. We just preach the next verse, and if nobody comes back next week, nobody comes back next week. That's just the way it is. I get that. I, I feel the weight of that. <laughs> um, but we are committed to the Bible, even when it's challenging and difficult. Sometimes people are dumbfounded over the truth of the Bible. And, they'll, the, you know, and I'll ask them two questions. And it's fine to, you know, it's fine to say, Jim, I, I'm struck. Well, here's what you do. You get him over the word and, and you pray and you ask God to teach you. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. Sometimes I'll tell people, hey, you got trouble? You got a problem with this? Go study it for five years and come back and talk to me about it. The problem is people want to discount things and never crack the book. Never study it. But two things, two questions I'll ask. How could infinite and om- omniscient God disclosure to us not contain transcendent mi- mystery? How could there not be mystery with God? He's infinite mind, you're two and a half pounds of gray matter. The other thing I ask sometimes is what makes you think you're meant to understand it all? You're just supposed to receive it all. Receive it all by faith. But here's what I know is true. If you'll cry out to God and you'll study the Word, (laughs) you'll come to it. You'll not only come to it, you'll love it. You will love it. That's a promise. And you remember Paul's exclamation, Romans 8, 9, and 10, and 11? uh, Chapters of Romans... He gets to the end there after he talks about this awesome salvation that God has wrought for His people. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. I hope that you'll join me in worshiping God even when it's challenging so, yeah, I don't preach sermonettes. They produce Christianettes and they're not good for much. We always just preach the next verse. And if it's challenging, praise God. He's about to grow us up a little bit. You guys know Hebrews 6 1. He says, the, the writer of Hebrews says, we should always be moving beyond elementary teachings and pressing on to maturity. So, if you hang in on John 17. You'll be confessing with God. I'm pressing on to maturity. That's what we'll be doing together in the coming weeks. So, John 17, he's not praying for Christianettes. He's praying for born-again men and women. His 11 disciples, but also for you and me. He's praying for every true lover of Jesus down through the ages who gets the whole I'm going to pick up my cross and follow Him thing. You know, who, who gets the, the, the seek ye first the kingdom of God thing, who gets the I'm going to fight the good fight and finish the course and keep the faith thing, who understands to live as Christ and to die is gain thing. Jesus is praying audibly that you might know how big and awesome and weighty and beautiful and mysterious and, and secure your salvation is. God wants you to know it. And God says this kind of person who lives my gift of eternal life huge will be the one who is humble and contrite of spirit. And if they need to, they tremble at my word. I'm going to spend at least two more sermons, maybe three in John 17. If this is brand new to you, feel free to talk to me about it. But if you come to me with an objection, I'm just going to ask you this favor. Come to me with a biblical objection. Not, I feel that this is not right, or this is unfair, or this is unjust. You know, if you want to, I, I'm happy to talk with you, but please at least come with a biblical, a biblical um, objection. Objection. Because that's where we're going to go. If you come to me, we're going to go to the Bible. We're going to see what the words say. That's all we do here. But please, I, I, I know that these words land hard on, on a lot of people. And I, I just want to be available. I want to be open. So we can all come to a deeper understanding of what God is saying. Let's pray together.